and welcome to Dragon Bites Basics, the paediatric podcast aimed at healthcare students or anyone in need of a refresher about common paediatric conditions. I'm Asim, one of the paediatric trainees here in Wales and one of the presenters for Dragon Bites. Each week, medical students will be joining paediatric doctors from Wales to discuss these common paediatric conditions and give them insights into paediatric problems that they may not have faced before. These episodes are just introductions and aren't meant to replace your regular revision. Remember, there will be some regional variations in practice and practice will change as new evidence comes to light. However, this is paediatrics made easy to help students get their head around some new concepts. This week's episode is about croup. Our Dragon Bites Basics host this week is Francis Bainan, who's a medical student at Swansea University. And he's going to be discussing croup with one of the paediatric registrars currently working in Wales, Dr. Blanchelon. Anyway, let's get started. Hello and welcome to this student edition of Dragon Bites with me, Francis Bynan, a medical student at Swansea University. Today I have with me Dr. Blanchelum, a paediatric registrar with an interest in oncology, who's kindly agreed to talk to us about croup. So Dr. Lum, welcome. Hi Francis, thanks for having me. Oh, you're very welcome. So could you tell us then, what is croup? So um, yeah, so croup I think is for exams especially, to take the pressure off yourselves, um, just for it's got another name which kind of tells you what it is so it's a lang oh I can never say this laryngotracheitis there we go or laryngotracheobronchitis um Mm -hmm. and if you just break that down which I'm sure you've all done your anatomy uh laryngo so larynx trachea from trache and then itis is just inflammation so croup really is just an inflammation of like the upper airways so your larynx and your trachea okay fab um so would you say it's more of an upper respiratory uh, in, in sort of irritant than rather than lower down into the lungs? Yeah, completely. So your lower lung ones are like your bronchiolitis and your pneumonia, and this is more your upper airways. So from your larynx and your trachea kind of upwards, basically. And and that you see in the different symptoms of the kind of conditions. Fantastic. So how would you say it typically presents and what are the classical features for us to look out for? So typically it's any age between six months and six years, but it tends to be younger. So it tends to be less than three. Um, boys generally have it more. So sometimes you'll see it more in them. And then it's a real typical what they call barking cough. So like a seal bark, um, which unfortunately I can't imitate. And then a strider, which is kind of like a squeaky noise, like a noise um and then they can also have kind of like a sore throat hoarse voice and general signs of being unwell so like fevers common um sometimes they'll have runny noses coryza they'll be off their food fluids and might have like decreased wet nappies and things like that okay and is it a sudden onset or is it more of a gradual onset would you say um so they might be generally a bit unwell for a day or two and then the strider tends to appear um, more suddenly in that they won't be there and then parents will notice it. But the cough and the kind of prodrome of being a bit unwell and having a fever can be there before the strider appears. Sure, sure. Okay. And are there, you've, you've mentioned a couple of key features there, but are there any red flags that we should be really worried about? Certainly if we're clerking or taking a history or, or doing a respiratory examination on a young child? 
Yeah, so um, I would always say for any child, if they're really quiet, that's always a worry, you know, Mm because when they feel unwell, they'll be quite clingy and they'll want to be with mum. So if they're just kind of listless and not really responding to you, that's always a red flag. Um, Cyanosis, so obviously if they're blue, you should worry. Um, And then with the stridor itself, if they have it when they're sat at rest, um, they're making that kind of... and they're not crying or active, then that's mm. more worrying. And then if they have quite significant work of breathing with that noise, so, you know, their subcostal, intercostal recession, tracheal tug, nasal flaring, they're all things that would make you worry a bit more. Um, and then one thing that isn't specific for croup, but is a differential, is if they're drooling, especially in unvaccinated children, if they're drooling they look really unwell and they've got stridor. It's unlikely to be croup it's un- and they're unvaccinated. It's more likely to be epiglottitis, which is a bit more of an emergency. Mm-hmm. Um, so though that's not the same thing, they present quite similar. So it's worth thinking about if you see a really drooly child, is you've got to ask yourself, is this actually croup or is this something else? Okay. And you've touched upon epiglottitis there. So that's obviously a key differential to, to bear in mind, I think, is it... A- yeah, epiglottitis, is, but it is actually really rare now um, because we, so epiglottitis for those who don't know is caused by Haemophilus influenza B for which there's a vaccine. Um, so it's actually very rare. I think I've seen one case and I've been a doctor for ooh, eight, ten years, something like that. Um, but if they're unvaccinated, it's obviously much more likely and they look very different to croup. Their, their fevers are normally really high. They're what we call like toxic looking. They look really unwell. They're, they kind of stent themselves against like the bed or against mum to really try and breathe. Um, and then they're drooling because they just can't swallow any of their uh, saliva. So that is an emergency and you should always call for help if you think someone's got epiglottitis. But as I said, it is quite rare now. So it's kind of in the back of your mind. Fantastic. Okay, that's very reassuring. So... <laughs> With croup, then, is there, can it be divided into some mild, moderate or, or severe uh, categories? Yeah, so um, there is actually a score that I looked up for this podcast because I've never heard of it, but uh, it might be something they'd like you to know, called the Wesley Croup Score. Um, and it effectively uh, divides them up into mild, moderate and severe. And there's scores, you score them for their stride or whether they've got work of breathing, whether when you're listening, they've got good or bad air entry, um, their saturations and then their conscious level. So obviously, if you're decreased conscious level, you're cyanotic and you've got low sats, you know, you're much more severe. And if you're scoring really highly on the score, then you've got impending respiratory failure. So that's a real emergency. The ones that we see more often than not are actually kind of a bit of a barking cough strider when they're playing or when they're laughing or when they're agitated. Um, And those ones are much less worried about. So I won't go into it, but if you just Google Wesley Croup score, it comes up quite easily to have a little look at that. That's perfect. Thank you so much. So then in terms of causes then of of Croup, what would you say are the most typical causes? So croup generally is an infective cause, hence the fever. I think it's something like 95% of them are viral. And of those 95%, three quarters of them are paroinfluenza. So there's th- like type one, two and three, but um, 
most commonly it's type one or two and that makes up the bulk of them um it can also be caused by you know normal flu adenovirus rsv and then the other kind of five percent of bacterial which apparently is kind of a strep staph thing and that's more of a bacterial trachitis um but they're much rarer and they tend to get a bit like the epiglottitis they look a bit more unwell their temperatures are a bit higher um but yeah the majority is just a normal viral illness at the moment we've got loads of paraflu around so i'm sure if any of you are on placement then you'll probably see at least one case of croup. So clear majority of viral uh, causes uh, and the most common of that is parainfluenza. Yeah. Perfect. Um, would you? Are there any risk factors then that people need to be aware of? Um, yes and no, I guess. Croup's a very common kind of childhood illness. Some people do get it recurrently, but not for any particular reason. Like I said before, boys get it a bit more than girls, but it's not a particular risk factor. Um, I guess the main thing is if you're unimmunized, you might get epiglottitis or be more unwell with croup. Um, and then if you already have a narrowing of your airways or a kind of floppy airway like a laryngomalacia or something like that, you'll be more at risk of the inflammation causing a narrowing so then you're more likely to get croup but it's not one you know the viruses are really common no, no children are really more or less likely to get paraflu it's just whether or not how they respond to it i guess yeah that makes perfect sense um so regarding investigations to confirm your diagnosis are there any or is it more of a clinical sort of examination so what you would do in an ideal world is confirm they've got a virus isn't it and we would do that by swabs in croup, the last thing you want to do is poke a swab into the back of someone's mouth. <laughs> so it tends to go more clinical. Um, but it is worth thinking that, you know, I think it's about 20% of children who come in with Strider don't have croup. So just keeping your mind open that, yes, it's a clinical diagnosis, but you just have to think, is it something else before you say, yes, I'm 100% happy it's croup. So that nicely leads on to my follow-on question really is, uh, we've mentioned epiglottitis as a possible differential. What other things would you like to have in the back of your mind when you're examining these children? So especially for little children with Strider, I'd always think about foreign body. The history tends to be a bit different. It's a much more sudden onset. They're not unwell. They don't necessarily have a temperature unless they inhaled it a week ago and they've now got an infection. Um, and it tends to be a bit more sudden. They're playing with something small. Mum heard like a gasp or a cough and then they've had the Strider since. So it's a little bit of a different history, but especially with like the less than three-year-olds I'd always think about foreign body. Um, and then it's kind of your other causes of Strider. So we've mentioned epiglottitis. The other one I probably wouldn't, forget is like anaphylaxis or angioedema um it's rarer in children but you know some children do have severe allergies and allergies are becoming more common again your history will be a bit different they'll have eaten something or come into contact with something they might have facial swelling or tongue swelling so it'll point you that way um and then there's other infectious diseases so um diphtheria but again that's pretty rare now because we get vaccinated they're Again, you're not really looking in their throats, but they get a grey membrane over the back of their throat. So that's how you tell the difference with diphtheria. Um, measles can give you kind of a similar picture, but again, they'll have quite an impressive rash. And then I guess if they're well with it, is that something anatomical like a laryngomalacia or a tracheal stenosis? They're kind of your other ones. Um, but yeah, it's, it, it's normally on the history, I think. They're differentials, but you'll if you take a good history that will point you to one of those differentials. So it's normally quite easy to differentiate which one you think it is, if that makes sense. 
Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, that, that, perfect. It's, it's back to the good old history then, I guess. Yeah, is they tell you a lot, a lot in medical school, don't they? Like, if you're not sure, go back to your history and examination. But it is actually true for life. If you're stuck and you think, okay, I don't know what's going on with this child, just go back to your history and generally you can figure it out. Perfect, perfect. Thank you. Um, are there any typical complications that can occur then from croup? So for like mild or moderate croup, no. Um I think 1% or as much as 3% end up getting intubated. So that's like the main morbidity, really. If you have really severe croup or you've presented a bit late, your work of breathing is massive, you're cyanotic, you're distressed, and you've got a strider, then then you could be intubated. But I've never seen that, I have to say. Generally, we manage them conservatively before they need that but it is it is kind of the main risk but even the children who get intubated um tend to be okay afterwards and tend to recover fantastic so in regarding the management then um we've obviously got sort of categories of severity what is the management for for patients with croup so the most important thing in croup is you just leave them alone okay you (laughs) let them sit on mum's lap you don't prod them poke them as much you try and avoid that as much as possible um you really just back off because as soon as you upset them the strider gets much worse and then they might get work of breathing and they get into a bit of a cycle and then if they can't catch their breath you know they could collapse in a heap um so i like peds because we do as little as possible and creep is the best example of that because you literally just leave them alone um you know there's two ways of managing things like this you can do like your abc if you're really worried about them or you can do like your just general examination but in both cases just stand back and watch that will give you all the information you need to know whether it's mild moderate or severe from where they're sat on mum's lap then you kind of it's supportive because it's viral so if they need oxygen that's fine but you give it to mum don't you know get it on their face and upset them just give mum the oxygen mask to hold um, and then the main treatment really is steroids um, you can give them we give them oral dexamethasone because that's been shown to be better than pred but you can give IM, I read, but I think that's a bit risky. If you need to buy yourself some time, you can give nebulized steroids in the form of budesonide, or you can give nebulized adrenaline, which will just buy you time. That doesn't actually treat it. So you still need to give them the steroids. But if they looked really sick and you wanted to buy yourself a bit of time, reduce that swelling a little bit, you give them some nebulized adrenaline, and then um, it will give you I think it works about two hours, so it just gives you a bit of time. You have to be careful when you do that, though, because there can be a rebound where their stride gets much worse when it comes back. Um, so the idea would be to give them some adrenaline to make them a bit more comfortable, get some steroids into them, and then generally they recover. Okay, that's really interesting, actually, especially with the rebound. I'd not appreciated that at all. Um, so I guess the adrenaline would be used in more of an emergency case. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, I think so. What I've seen recently is in A&E, they seem to like be quite quick to give adrenaline, um, which what well, I always learned like that, if you're giving adrenaline, you should be phoning for help because you're worried. But it seems to be more common practice now. You just give them a bit of adrenaline. It lets them breathe a bit easier. They calm down a bit. Then you can get the steroids in. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'd always think if, if I'm giving this child adrenaline, do I need more help? And that's something you should always think if you're in at any point of your career, do I need help? is this child really sick um because nothing happens quickly you'll soon learn when you're a doctor so you know you need help and you think everyone should come straight away but that that never happens yeah no that's another really interesting point actually because we've got you've mentioned a list of 
um, medications to possibly give, such as all dexamethasone or nebulized budesonide, etc. Uh, certainly when I'm revising for exams, it just seems like a list of things you give in pretty quick sequence. So uh, it's good to know that it takes a bit of time for these to sort of take effect. Um, and there's and a lot of the human sorry to interrupt you there's a lot of the human factors so I did a sim on my ward the other day with the nurses and it was anaphylaxis and no one could find IM adrenaline on the ward because it turned out it wasn't on the emergency trolley so you know yeah you learn it for exams and go okay so I would give nebulized adrenaline I would give dexamethasone I would call for help but yeah it's never that simple in real life that is good to know actually so fantastic thank you (laughs) um what would you say, so we're coming, coming to the end now, but what would you say is the prognosis then for, for, for these children? Um, Very good. You know, the majority of them get better. The majority of them just have one dose of DEX if they need some at all and go home. The important thing with croup is um, you give them good safety netting. The, the stride around the cough is generally worse at night. So we see a lot of them in A&E and NCAU overnight. They might have a dose of DEX. You observe them, they get better. But advising the parents that they might need a second dose and the most likely time is the next night when they get on well again is is probably the best thing but no majority of these get better um if it is just kind of a viral croup it's the ones that have something a bit more complicated like the epiglottitis that tend to get a bit sicker okay um with regarding sort of the symptoms and are, are they typically worse at night or develop at night uh, the cough and the stridor definitely are worse at night. That's true with a lot of um, kind of children's respiratory diseases, like lots of people tell asthma, the wheeze is worse at night, they get nocturnal cough. Um, so yeah, it's always worth just warning parents that decks only last, I think, for 12 hours. So in theory, you see them at the peak of their illness, they get a dose of decks and then they get better over the next couple of days and they don't need any more treatment. But, you know, the next night they might get worse again if they'd been a bit earlier in their illness and they might need repeat doses. So it's just, it goes back to kind of like your safety netting and red flags that you should always tell any patient you send home um, because it protects them and it protects you that they don't just sit at home thinking, oh, they're going to get better because they can get worse. Mm. Uh, And do... Uh, patients ever need any follow-up um not for a simple group if they were in itu and they got intubated i imagine they'll have follow-up if they get recurrent croup and they're having it a lot i they probably get referred to ent and have follow-up just to make sure there's nothing anatomical or anything else going on um but generally no they don't need any follow-up so referral to ent is only generally done if they're having recurrent episodes as an outpatient if they're very unwell and you're worried they're going to lose their airway, then you would either power or crash call. Um, but you'd want ENT there because if they if they crash very, very quickly and you can't intubate them, the next kind of step would be a trachea, which would be done by ENT. But to be honest, I think you'd, someone would have had to leave that child a long time to get that to that stage. And, and we're quite good at recognising croup. Fantastic. Okay. So... Dr. Lum, if you could describe croup in one or two sentences, which I appreciate is probably very difficult to do, then what? how would you do that? Um, I'd probably just say it's like an inflammation of the upper airways. That kind of summarises what it is. Um, and if you know that, you can work your way back to what the treatment and things like that would be. Excellent. Okay. And is there anywhere our listeners can go to learn a little bit more about croup? So there is actually a really nice kind of 
summary of croup on the RCEM, so RCEM, Royal College of Emergency Medicine uh, website. And if you just Google RCEM croup e-learning, it comes up. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, Dr. Levin, thank you ever so much indeed. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you uh, with us today. Thank you for having me. I've, I've enjoyed learning a bit more about croup, I'll say that. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. And for all our listeners, tune in next week. And I just wanted to say thank you to both Francis and Blanche for recording that episode for us. Join us again next week for more episodes of Dragon Bites Basics.